Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read that in preparation for looking at the truths of God's Word as they are summarized in Article 21 of our Belgic Confession. In Philippians, of course, Paul is writing from imprisonment. He's under arrest, likely uh, being held as a, a prisoner in a home, a house. And yet it's one of the most joyful letters of the Bible. Because even though he is physically imprisoned, Paul recognizes that he has been given the greatest freedom, the freedom of salvation in Christ. And so he says in chapter 3, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glo they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. In Article 21 of our Confession, we're reminded that we believe that Jesus Christ is ordained with an oath to be an everlasting high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that He has presented Himself in our behalf before the Father to appease His wrath by His full satisfaction, by offering Himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out 
His precious blood to purge away our sins, as the prophets had foretold. For it is written, He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and numbered with the transgressors, and condemned by Pontius Pilate as a malefactor, though he had first declared him innocent. Therefore he restored that which he took not away, and suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, as well in his body as in his soul, feeling the terrible punishment which our sins had merited, inasmuch as his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. He called out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, and has suffered all this for the remission of our sins? Wherefore we justly say with the Apostle Paul that we know nothing save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We count all things but loss and refuse for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose wounds we find all manner of consolation. Neither is it necessary to seek or invent any other means of being reconciled to God than this one only sacrifice, once offered, by which He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. This is also the reason why He was called by the angel of the Lord, Jesus, that is, Savior, because He would save His people from their sins. Amen. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we enter into what is arguably the heart of the biblical truth that we confess. This section of our confession from Articles 21 through 23 points with clear and simple language to the heart and core of our hope of our comfort, of the Christian faith. Because these articles point to the nature and application of Christ's redeeming work. Martin Luther rightly said that this matter of justification in Christ alone is the point on which the church stands or falls. If we get this part right, all the rest should fall into line. But if we get this part wrong, then all the rest of what we study and confess is Useless. Now that's not to say that the rest of what we confess is not important. It's essential. Jesus did not come merely to get sinful men and women into heaven. He came to redeem. He came to bring restoration as far as the curse is found. But it starts right here. With justification. It starts right here. With redeeming sinful men and women out of their sin, out of the power of sin, out of their rebellion, and bringing them back into peace with God. And he could do that because and only because he stood as our perfect high priest. And so that's what Article 21 shows us. That we are called to confess Christ as our self-sacrificing high priest. And as we do that, we see two aspects about his priestly work. The first of which is that as our high priest, he restores us completely. He restores us completely. He's it. He is the sum and the substance of what we need. Jesus is the essence and the fullness in bodily form of God's goodness and grace. The heart of our confession is the one who selflessly died so that we might live. And therefore, He alone is able to restore us completely. 
But we need to ask, what exactly does that mean? What is the restoration which Christ came to accomplish for us? Article 21 uses a number of terms to speak of the thing that Jesus has done. But above all, our, fathers, our forefathers highlighted here that Jesus came to remove the barrier that stood between men and God. Remember, we were, from the very moment Adam sinned, we were estranged. We were cut off from God. It was as though, it was as though a great wall had been built between us and God, a wall of the sort that a petty neighbor might build so that he could pretend that the neighbors that he so despises don't even exist. A wall through which there is no communion possible. There is no fellowship available. A wall that gives the illusion of privacy and of independence. Now men sometimes revel in that wall, in their sin, in their rebellion. Romans 1 tells us that because of the creation around us and the way that it reflects the Creator who designed it all, we all know in our hearts that He exists. But in selfish rebellion, we pretend as though it were not so. We worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. That's celebrating that wall that stands between us and God. But that wicked rebellion always leaves us empty. It always leaves us wanting more. It always leaves us unsatisfied. Because we know that that wall exists and we know that God stands on the other side of it. But our confession reminds us that Christ has done what we could not. He came to tear down that wall. By satisfying God's wrath. By purging away our sin. By removing the terrible punishment that was due to us. In, in that work, He came to restore us to God. And yet it's not only about tearing down our sin that He came. Sometimes we think that way, right? Jesus' blood covers over our sin. And that's true, that's essential, but that's not it. Because if that was all that he had done, well then we would stand as Adam did before God. Given the choice to sin or to not sin. Given the choice to rebel or to stand obedient. Far be it from us that we should try to stand that test. We can't do it. We would fail just as surely as Adam did. And so Jesus, he came to not only break down that wall but to draw us into God's presence by attributing to us the perfect righteousness of His life, by attributing to us the perfect holiness that He had displayed. Jesus not only delivers us from sin, but also brings us into God's favor so that the reconciliation He brings is complete. Now how can this be? How could He accomplish such an amazingly comprehensive act he could do so only by coming as our perfect high priest. Hebrews 5 reminds us of the purpose of a high priest. It says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So high priests, priests in general, 
were drawn from among men so that they could minister for men. They understand what men are like. They understand what it's like to live in the midst of a, a broken and fallen world, to be beset by temptation and weakness. And as those who understand what it's like to be a man, they bring the gifts and the sacrifices to God that will cover over the sins of the men they represent. Problem is, all the high priests that came before failed. They failed because they were sinful. And so they couldn't enter truly into the presence of God. They failed because the sacrifices they brought were insufficient. They were bringing the sacrifices of bulls and goats when it was a man who had sinned and died and, and rebelled against God. They failed because they were mortal. And so their intercession lasted only a brief span, whereas our need lasts eternally. And so Jesus came not just as one of them, but as the culmination, as the fullness, as the perfection of the priesthood. He came as one of us, fully man, but perfect. He withstood every temptation without sin, without rebellion. He stood among men and, and reckoned with felt, experienced all of their weakness, but refused to use that as an excuse to perpetuate rebellion against God. And then having lived that perfect life, having qualified Himself to enter into the presence of the Heavenly Father, He brought the perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice of Himself. Hebrews 9 says, He entered... Once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And although Israel took comfort in the blood of bulls and goats to temporarily cleanse them from their sin, Hebrews 9 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works that we might serve the living God. Brothers and sisters, consider that. He came as the perfect priest who could enter fully and truly into the presence of God. He came with the perfect sacrifice of Himself, offering the unblemished man for all the defiled men and women who had come before. He allowed Himself to be broken as the sacrament shows us. Because that's what our sins merited. That's what we deserve. He allowed His blood to be poured forth. Because that's the only sacrifice that could cleanse us from sin. And then He took that into the presence of our Heavenly Father where He sits today interceding for us, praying for us, providing for all of our needs. Because of what He did, we who belong to Christ receive all of His gracious gifts. Think about that. We receive peace with God. Nothing we could do could earn us peace with God. All we could do was deepen our estrangement from Him. We could, we could simply build up that wall higher. But He tore it down and walked us into the presence of God. In Him we receive peace. In Him we receive forgiveness. All the sins we've ever committed. All the sins we ever will commit. There's nothing we need to do. Nothing that we can do. To pay the price for those. He paid all of it on the cross. More than that, He freed us from sin. 
left to ourselves, we can't not sin. But Jesus broke those chains off of us. Just as He, just as he led Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, He led us out of that slavery to sin so that we would be able finally to begin serving God. And He gave us triumph over the world. The world would hold us down. The world would continue to besmirch us with its rebellion, with its wickedness. But He gave us freedom from all the world's power. He gave us freedom from the fear which enslaves the world. He gave us freedom from the isolating loneliness that fills the world. And He gave His people peace. How amazing is that? Jesus has done it all. There is nothing left for us to do. That's why Paul celebrated. I mean, at the beginning of Philippians 3, understand what he's saying there. If there was peace available, if there was reconciliation possible between men and God on the basis of what sinful men did, he would have had it. He had the perfect pedigree. He had done all the right things, joined all the right organizations, learned all the right truths. But at the end of the day, he realized it did nothing for him. Right? It didn't accomplish a thing. The only thing that would work, the only thing that would be effective in restoring him to God is what Jesus did. The work of the perfect high priest. And so he confesses, I count it all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that comes through faith. There alone can we receive the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation to God and the peace that we inwardly crave. Only through what Jesus has done, only through what we receive by faith. Do you see the freedom in that? We've seen in recent years how enslaved by fear our world is. There's a virus that spread across the world and people were beside themselves with fear. Why? Because there was a 1%, maybe a 2% chance they might die. And they were utterly undone because of fear. Because they knew in their hearts if they die, they have to face the, the music. They have to answer for their sin. And they were terrified of that. But we have no fear. Because Christ already suffered the cost of our sin. Christ already paid the debt. If we die, we get to go into glory. If we die, we get to know the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Why would we fear death? And if we don't fear death, then what else will we fear? There's nothing. There is nothing. Christ has freed us completely, restored us completely to God. Now, of course, there's nothing new in that to us, is there? We've heard all these things before. They ring true in our ears. And yet, still, the old man who still lurks within us still is tempted to look elsewhere. Because Satan never stops seeking to lead us astray. And the world never stops whispering rumors that there's a different path. The flesh is always seeking alternate sources for confidence, for comfort, for peace. Some of those paths seek restoration and comfort that are blatant and ugly in their rejection of Christ. 
Men find comfort in their ethnicity or their race. As though those who are of a European background or those who are of an African background or those whose skin is light colored or those whose skin is dark colored are somehow superior, are somehow inherently pleasing to God. Others prefer their political leanings or their particular experiences over the comfort of Christ. Their only comfort is that they belong to this political party or that. They utter hopeful words about the eternal blessings of such a good leader, such a good soldier, such a good police officer, such a hero. Or they believe what the billionaire Michael Bloomberg once said, that having devoted so much money to so many good causes, I have earned my place in heaven. He said, it's not even close. But folks, that, those gospels are selfless or self-centered and hopeless. Others hope in false gospels that are much more pious sounding, but still false. They think because they know the right truths, because they belong to the right church, because they've, they've made profession of faith, because they come from a Christian family, they're okay. But, but that's just as empty as saying, I'm going to heaven because I'm a Republican. Not even your church membership, not even the things that you've learned and recited can save you before God. Only Christ can do that. That's the other thing we see here. Not only does He restore us completely, He restores us uniquely. There is no one, nothing else that can save us. We can't even begin to contribute to our salvation. Now that's not to say that it's not important to submit to God's command to join ourselves with the faithful church. Right? That's not to say that it's not important to learn the doctrines that flow out of Scripture and to teach those to our children. It is important. It's important to follow God's law. But as a response, you see, all that stuff is fruit. And not just the way we respond to the church, the way we respond to the world. The politics that we pursue, the way that we uh, deal with our neighbor, the way that we work, those are all important. But they're fruit. It's Christ that saves us, not the fruit. The fruit simply shows what vine we're connected to. Jesus says in, in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If you've got a grapevine, and that grapevine is healthy, its branches will inevitably bear fruit. And if the vine is healthy, the fruit will be good. But if, you've got, if you're a vineyard keeper, and you've got branches that are bearing no fruit, or poor fruit, then either the branch is dead, or the vine is diseased. And that's what Jesus says to us. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So that fruit is important. If you're not seeking to grow in Christ, if you're not gaining an increasing love for the Lord, if you're not beginning to delight in worshiping God, well, there's something wrong, right? We need to pray that God would restore the health of the branch, that God would plug us in more truly to the vine. But it's only fruit. It's the vine that gives us life. And the vine is Christ. And we can have everything He has done simply by trusting in Him. Simply by believing He is who He said He is. He has done what He said He has done. Remember Paul's warning that we heard just a few minutes ago. For many, 
of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You know them. You see them. They're in your families. They're on your street. They're all around us. Most of them aren't flaming atheists who are attacking the gospel. No, they're just simply living for themselves, living for their pleasure, devoting their lives to amassing treasures, living for the moment, living for the weekend. But he says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Only Jesus can restore us. He is unique. And if He is restoring us, our minds will not be set on earthly things. Our minds will be set on Christ. Only let us hold true to what we have attained, He says. And we do that by trusting in the One who is signified for us in the Lord's Supper. As you take up that bread, remember how He died on the cross, allowed Himself to be broken, because of your sin. As you take up that wine, you smell its pungent odor, you taste its tangy flavor. Remember that just as real as that wine is, so real was His blood that poured forth for our sake and that now cleanses us and makes us holy in the sight of God. And put your hope in Him and in Him alone. He is the only high priest who can restore us, but He is the one who does it perfectly and completely. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That's the calling of the Lord's Supper. That's the calling of Philippians 3. That's the calling of the Gospel. Stand firm. Not in what you have done, not in what other people have done for you, not in the things to which you belong or the things that you've been given by men. Stand firm in Christ. For He is your high priest. He is your perfect sacrifice. He is your peace before God. And if you stand in Him, you have everything man could ever need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You sent Your Son no greater gift than this could man ever know. And so we ask, Lord, strengthen our faith in Him and enable us to bear fruit that demonstrates that we belong to Him, that You might be glorified through this, Your beloved people. In the name of Jesus, our perfect High Priest, we ask it. Amen.